Welcome to the Leaders in Payments podcast, where we talk to C-level leaders from across the payments landscape. We'll be discussing the products and services that impact the payment space today, as well as trends and predictions for the future of payments. We will also hear stories from our guests about their journeys to the top. As you know, it's Financial Inclusion Month. And in this, the fourth episode of the month, we have two top-notch experts discussing one of the main drivers for financial inclusion, faster payments. With me today are Faster Payments Council Executive Director Reed Lutonen and National Consumer League Representative Gail Hillebrand. Together, they have more than 40 years of experience in the payments industry. The Faster Payments Council was founded in 2018 to bring about an inclusive governance framework to help advance ubiquitous, safe, and easy-to-use faster payments. Gail has spent the majority of her time in consumer advocacy focused on protecting U.S. consumers. The two of them agree faster payments can be a pathway to greater financial inclusion by removing risk and adding certainty to the transaction. As part of this podcast, we talk in depth about a recent white paper that gives recommendations on the topic of financial inclusion as it relates to faster payments. The paper identifies eight specific barriers to financial inclusion, three of which we discuss in detail on this podcast, trust, design, and fraud. Reed and Gail discuss the 7.1 million Americans who currently don't have bank accounts, the 50% plus of Americans living paycheck to paycheck, and the most prominent recommendations to address three of the main barriers. In our show notes, we have links to the previously mentioned white paper, a summary infographic, as well as a recent Faster Payments Council podcast on this topic. Before we dive into the episode, I want to give a special thanks to The Clearinghouse for sponsoring Financial Inclusion Month. To learn more about The Clearinghouse, just visit www.theclearinghouse.org. We've got a great episode ahead, so let's get started. Hi, Reed and Gail. Thank you so much for being here, and welcome to the Leaders in Payments podcast, especially this episode, which is going to focus on financial inclusion. So again, thank you so much for being here. Absolutely. Thanks for having us, Greg. Thank you. So let's dive right in. Reed, I'll start with you. Maybe just tell our audience a little bit about yourself, your role at the Faster Payments Council, and a little bit about the council. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. I guess I'll start off by saying I've been in the payments industry for about 20 years. The first 15 or so I spent at a little local retailer here in Northwest Arkansas called Walmart, working on various forms of payment acceptance for Walmart, including various stints running government benefits acceptance, global gift card, debit, credit, and so forth. That led me to some work on the Federal Reserve's Payments Systems Improvement Initiative, including the two task forces, the Secure Payments Task Force and the Faster Task Force, which culminated in a series of recommendations, including that there should be an overarching governance framework for the transition to faster payments in the United States, at which point we pulled together a group called the Governance Framework Formation Team, which created the Faster Payments Council and launched it in October of 2018. 18. So we're coming up on our fourth anniversary. So what is the Faster Payments Council? Why does it exist? Well, it exists to fulfill that recommendation from the task force, which is to bring about an inclusive governance framework to help advance the United States to ubiquitous, safe, easy to use, faster payments. And we do that by bringing together all these different segments of the payments ecosystem, including financial institutions, of course, payment network operators, technology providers, but also business end users like my former employer and many others, and also consumer groups like the one Gail is here to represent. And so we bring those different facets of the ecosystem together, and then we work on things that are topical or that are important to our members, things like financial inclusion or fraud, 
things that maybe can unlock the usage of faster payments like QR codes or directory models, looking at cross-border payments, using APIs to conduct payments and things like that and so forth. It's important to remember that we believe in our thesis here at the FPC is that we can get to better answers more quickly by including all these different payments ecosystem stakeholders. And so far, it's been a really fun ride. Great. Thanks for sharing that. Gail, tell us a little bit about yourself and your role. I'm happy to do that. I represent the National Consumers League to the Faster Payments Council. It's one of the groups in the consumer segment. The National Consumers League has been working to protect U.S. consumers since 1899 with a focus on safety in the marketplace. Prior to that, I had over 25 years at Consumer Reports doing consumer financial protection advocacy work for consumers. And then I helped to start up the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. We helped to open the doors and I led one of its divisions for nine years. So I've been around payments since we were doing revisions to check law in the late 1980s and seeing the electronic variations come in with a variety of consumer protections and some holes occasionally. And I'm really happy to be part of this effort to talk about what it's going to really take to financially include more people in faster payments. Awesome. So Read back to you, the Faster Payments Council has a working group called Financial Inclusion Working Council. Can you tell us why it was started to begin with? Sure, Greg. The impetus for this was that a number of our members identified a few different areas where the topics of faster payments and financial inclusion overlap with each other. So first, our members believe there's a strong possibility that faster payments can be a pathway to greater financial inclusion. When you remove risk and add certainty to transactions, you can potentially make a broader population of customers available to financial institutions while also making being banked more attractive to those customers. The question of access is a complicated one, but today there's a population of people who would be given an account if they walked into a bank branch today, but who choose not to be banked. It could be because they've been burned by fees in the past, they prefer the certainty that comes with cash, which is of course the OG real-time payment or myriad other reasons why a person would prefer to remain outside the formal banking system. There's also a population of people who, for one reason or another, are not currently eligible for a traditional checking account at some or even most financial institutions. The trouble is, at this point, participating fully in the economy and taking advantage of the technological revolution that has been brought on by the internet and apps and all the time-saving aspects of e-commerce it's essential to be able to transact digitally to fully participate. So the trick with one group on the one hand is to make banks more attractive to them. And the trick with the other group is to identify ways to de-risk accounts such that a broader population of people are eligible to be banked. And so the mission of our work group here is to provide a blueprint for leveraging faster payments to accelerate access to the financial system for unbanked and underserved Americans. And just point of clarification, so it's really just US-based, right? Yes. Gail, so you are the chair of this working group. So can you explain why this working group is so important and what the overall mission of the working group is? Yes, thank you. Financial inclusion, of course, is fundamentally important to make sure people can fully participate in the economy, get the advantages of online commerce, and do it safely so that their hard-earned money doesn't go to the wrong place or disappear with fraud. So the Charter of the Financial Inclusion Working Group is to look at how faster payments can increase financial inclusion. But we thought that the first question in that big set of questions was, what is it going to take to get more people included in using faster payments? How do we get more people across the economic spectrum to have a product that they want and will use? And that's where we started. Our working group is quite broad. We have 
I think almost all of the Faster Payments Council segments represented. We had business end users, fintechs, we had some big financial institutions, banks and credit unions. And so we really had a lot of different perspectives on this issue. And we kind of put our shoulders to the wheel and said, what's it going to take and what can providers of payment services do to make these products more attractive to people who are not yet using them? So that was the question we addressed in our report, Faster Payments and Financial Inclusion, which came out in July of 2022. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit more detail in a minute. But before we go there, Reed, who are some of the members of the Financial Inclusion Group? I think Gail gave us some of the broader groups, but who are some of the members? Yeah, Gail did a nice job of outlining the fact that we have a broad cross-section of the ecosystem represented here. Obviously, consumer groups such as the National Consumers League and also the National Community Reinvestment Coalition. Adam Rust is the vice chair of the working group. But we also have retailers such as Walmart and Target represented, as well as financial institutions, including Navy Federal Credit Union, Wells Fargo and Metabank, network operators such as MasterCard and the Federal Reserve, and of course, the sponsor of the work group, PSCU. That's just a sample. And Greg, there's probably about 35 or 40 members in the work group. And Reed, in late July, the council released a white paper. I think Gail just mentioned it in July. And it's all about financial inclusion. So can you talk a little bit about that white paper at a high level? Yeah, absolutely. The paper starts off with a couple seemingly simple questions. How can we get more financial inclusion in payments? And how can people who have to manage their money closely benefit from the features of faster payments? You see, while there's been strong growth in the use of faster payments, that growth hasn't been experienced equally by all. For example, the FDIC found that usage of P2P payment apps was about 4x more prevalent among banked households than non-banked households. It was with that in mind that the FPC's Financial Inclusion Workgroup developed the blueprint of action steps for expanding financial inclusion in faster payments. The report defines the underserved population, identifies eight clusters of topics that are pain points or barriers to expanded inclusion, and develops action steps that can be taken by private sector entities in payments to address those pain points. So the paper is divided into four main parts, the population for financial inclusion, pain points and barriers to financial inclusion, actions and solutions to expand financial inclusion, and then finally, enhancing solutions and services for the underserved. Okay. Gail, before we dive into some of those barriers, can you define for us how the white paper or how you guys as the working group are defining the underserved? We chose a very broad lens to talk about who can be served better in faster payments. And there are three groups. The most obvious one are people who don't have a bank account. That's 7.1 million households in America. That's, of course, the most difficult transition to go from cash economy all the way over to a fully digital for some transactions in faster payments. But we didn't stop there because we also looked at the more than half of American households who are living paycheck to paycheck. And for those households, it's a bigger risk to make sure that your money is going to go where you want it to go every time because there's nothing to spare. So we included that group of people living paycheck to paycheck, and that's a big chunk of the American population. In our examination of the question, how can faster payments serve these households better? And our charter also called for us to include small businesses, which we did. As we did the exploratory work, our members identified that there are two characteristics that really all of these groups have in common, small business and the consumers, and is that they are strapped for time and strapped for cash. Cash liquidity can be quite low, both in households and in small businesses. And in many cases, people are juggling 
managing their business or managing more than one job in the household, maybe some side gigs, and really don't want to spend a lot of time thinking about what's happening behind the scenes when they pay someone. And those small businesses that you mentioned, are those really small, like maybe just one to five employees? Is that typically what you would say? We did not define that universe because we thought that it's really kind of a scale. As you go up, you get a few more employees, but you still face these same liquidity and time challenges. Okay, that makes sense. Gail, this question's for you. And Reed mentioned it, the white paper identifies eight barriers. So can you list those for us? And then we're going to actually go deeper into a few of them, not all eight. But if you don't mind listing all eight, that would be great. Yeah, I'll give you a short description of those barriers. There were quite a lot, and we did some work to bring it down to eight. But the first one is the design of the products themselves and whether they are really designed with a cash-strapped customer in mind and how they can be designed better to address the issues that the particular customers face. The next one is similar, the liquidity constraints and the resource constraints that these customers have and what that means for how the product should be offered and customer service. Third one is cash in, cash out. This is specific to people who are unbanked, and it's the question of the extra costs these households face in trying to get the money into a digital form on the front end in order to use any kind of digital payment, in this case, faster payments, and the costs they may face in the last mile to get that money back into cash because some of the people they transact with may not be accepting a faster payment and they need to pay them in cash or in something that they convert from cash. The fourth one is trust, and we're going to go into that one, I think, in some depth. Number five is mistake. This is that same question of does your money go where you want it to go every time? And do you feel trust and confidence that that will happen? Big issue in fraud, and we'll talk about that and fraud prevention. And then the last two are security, which of course applies to everyone, not just people who are not yet in the system, and interoperability for ease of use so that your money is not sitting around in little pots where you can't use it to pay all of your different bills. And again, that's a system issue that goes well beyond inclusion, but it is very important to inclusion. So we're going to dive deeper into three areas, trust, design, and fraud. And Gail, Reed, either one of you can jump in and add some more information on these. But let's start with trust. So maybe tell us a little more, Gail, what you mean by trust. With the issue of trust and confidence, we are really looking at how much people will feel that if they use the system, it's going to work for them at least as well as all the other ways that they pay. We were able to identify the big issue as uncertainty there. There's some excellent work by the FDIC looking at why people are unbanked, including people who are unbanked but were previously banked and gave up their bank account because it didn't work for them. And they identified fees, both absolute level of fees, but also uncertainty about what fee costs would be in the future as a key barrier for people who didn't want a bank account. And we translated that over and thought it was also going to be a key barrier here the uncertainty for a small business about infrastructure costs to change to a new system and the uncertainty for a consumer about what's it going to cost later after I get everything set up for it. With respect to that one, our recommendation for action is pretty simple. Fees should be low, they should be simple, and they should change slowly so that once people have signed up, they're not facing a constant change. We also identified customer service as a key element in building trust, confidence, and certainty. And we thought it was really important that that customer service be what we called omni-channel, that it be available in the app so you can do it right there, but that it also be available by phone, and that there are times where you need to talk to a real person. 
And that especially comes up if people have experienced any kind of a disruption, delay, uncertainty about where their money is and whether it went to the right place. That's when you need to talk to a real person. We also recommended that customer service be multilingual. And across the whole industry, people are talking about the fact that if the payment is 24-7, the customer service is also going to have to be 24-7. And then can you speak to the second barrier, design? Yes. This was really, in some ways, a pretty fundamental insight. We talked to some advocates, people working with low-income families. And one of them said to us, you know, people expect my customers to use this product, but it hasn't been designed for them as the primary user. And so if someone is using it to pay bills, they may have very different needs than if they're just using it to send a birthday present or to split a bill or some kind of discretionary thing. If you're using it for your obligations, you may need some different design features. If you're using it to send family members money in an emergency, Instead of just because you can, you may need a different level of reliability. And we recommend that anyone who wants to really bring in these new populations needs to do user research on those populations, just like you would on any other target customer. Needs to do testing before and after deployment, not only to see how you want to serve that customer, but how the customer is really using the product afterwards to see if it's working as expected. We recommended simplicity in the platforms. I was on a panel recently with someone from Consumer Reports, and he said, that their research showed that when people are infrequent users, they come back in, the platform looks totally different and they're kind of like, where's my money? How do I use it? In tech, you know, we love to change things up all the time, but it may not be the best way to serve a customer who just wants to know where their money is and wants to use it the same way every time. We also recommended that the design could think about the values that people get from using cash and whether the product can mimic some of those benefits. And I'm not a big proponent of cash, but there are reasons why people use it that go beyond just anonymity. And they include that you can segregate it for budgeting. Another reason people use cash is you can give it away in small amounts to somebody to go and do a specific thing and not take the risk of exposing your whole balance. And so these are features that faster payments products could mimic and could offer similar benefits. And so we recommended people think long and hard about that one. And finally, design. In architecture, they say form follows function. Here, I think that the design in some way can influence what the function is and what the functionality is. And so we recommended a number of things in the design that might help to reduce the issue of mistake, to reduce the possibility that you type in the wrong phone number and send it to the wrong person. Those can be speed bumps and they can be designed by customer segment. Maybe your customers only need them when they're new customers. Maybe there's certain kinds of pattern analysis that can tell you what type of payment is more likely to be unusual. And that's where the customer could get a pop-up right there when they're arranging the send that says, did you really want to do this? Every month you send to Maria Garcia, but this time you're sending to M. Garcia, who lives in a different city, or something else that helps the customer to just double check before the send, because as you know, it's very hard to get the money back after you've sent it. So that's kind of what we recommend in design. Really think about this customer and their needs, how they want to manage their money and the kinds of people they pay, and to really design for that. Read anything to add there? I think the thing to keep in mind too is what Gail was kind of getting there at the end is if you include this kind of concept from the beginning as you're building your solution, it's not going to feel like something that's intrusive to the folks that you maybe were historically targeting with solutions and now you're trying to add on this other underserved population. If you're building something from the ground up with these philosophies in mind, it'll feel seamless to every user and that's better for everybody. And finally, let's discuss fraud. I know it's obviously a big issue. So Gail, maybe give us a little bit more detail around that topic. 
We identified fraud as the biggest issue, and we're not the only ones who have done so. The Federal Reserve Board's research on who plans to use instant payments, they found that about 40% of people said, yeah, I'm not going to do that. And for those folks, half of them said the reason was concerns about fraud. So we know on the one hand that people are concerned about fraud. We know on the other hand that a lot of people think that if it comes from your bank, it's going to be safe. And we've got a long tradition of people promoting zero liability policies and other things that cause consumers to think, if I'm doing it through my bank, I'll be able to fix a problem. But now we have this odd situation where if a person is a crook and they steal your account credentials and steal from you, you can get your money back. But if they're a crook and they get you to send them money, it's not so clear that you can get your money back. That's not going to work with customers. If your money's been stolen, exactly how the crook did it is not that relevant to you. You still want your money back. So we looked at this question of what can be done about fraud. And fraud's an age-old problem. But we thought that there are some things that can be done on the front end with the sender at the sender level in terms of pattern analysis to see what kinds of payments are anomalous and might indicate fraud. And here's an example. If your customer has been sending the same amount of money every month to someone and suddenly they want to send 10 times that amount, that could be that they're helping a family member who has an emergency, but it could be it's a romance scam because that's how the scam works. You get people to send you small amounts of money and then you say, oh, my son needs surgery. I want to buy a plane ticket and fly to meet you and I need a whole bunch more money and people do send money in those circumstances. So a simple pop-up there that says, it's your money, you can do whatever you want, but this pattern has been associated with fraud for our other customers. Do you want to talk this over with a family member and come back in five minutes if you still want to do it? And other things of that sort, and this will be testing. There are a lot of smart techies in our country who can figure out how to design these pop-ups and warnings. We did, however, recommend that a whole bunch of the work is going to have to be done at the recipient's financial institution because the individual senders and the individual sending FIs can't tell how often this is happening. And the place where that knowledge can be ascertained is at the network level and at the recipient level. So we thought there was going to have to be a lot more know your customer work related to knowing whether your customer is a crook if you're a recipient financial institution, patterns of receipt analysis, velocity controls, how much money can come into a recipient account at one time. And we also recommended there's going to be a very big role for the networks, both the private networks and FedNow when it comes on because they have an opportunity to see the whole system. And I think one of the challenges, and we only touch on this lightly in the report, is that the analysis and the data about what the frauds are is going to have to match the cycle time of the fraudsters. And fraudsters are fast, and they change their tactics often. And so we're going to have to figure out how to do the same. We also recommended both for a mistake and for fraud that there could be some remedies for consumers. And this is a big problem, but we think it's the one that needs to be addressed to really bring more people into the system that they can have confidence in and that will really work for them. Reed, anything to add there about fraud? I think Mrs. Gale was getting at this. I think the key takeaway there is that really, literally everybody in the ecosystem has a role to play here and there's value that you can add, regardless of if you're an end user, a network provider, a tech provider, or a financial institution. There's value you can add to helping fight and prevent fraud in the system and that we all should take that seriously. And Reed, there's... The white paper we've been talking about, there's also an infographic that's related to the white paper. Could you just tell us where the audience can most easily find those resources? Happily, and I'll even provide one more resource on top of that. You can go to fasterpaymentscouncil.org 
click on the Knowledge Center and then Resources. There's a ton of information there in addition to these two documents that you just referenced, Greg. And then also, I just wanted to call out, it wouldn't be right for me to get on a podcast and not plug my own podcast. Off the Rails from the U.S. Faster Payments Council podcast twice a month. And actually in August, we had Gail and Adam Rust on to talk about their work in the financial inclusion paper. So if what you've heard today has been interesting to you, go check that one out as well. Yeah. And we'll actually link to all those resources and to your podcast so everyone can find those easily. We've obviously covered a lot of ground about both of you and your backgrounds and what you're doing with the Faster Payment Council and more specifically with the Financial Inclusion Working Group. I think it's fascinating work. It's part of my mission with this month focusing on this is to bring to light what we're doing in the payments and fintech space and make it aware to people how much you know we actually participate in financial inclusion and helping the underserved and underbanked. So I think this white paper and everything you guys are doing as a working group is something that I'm glad we're able to get that message out even more. So before we wrap up the show, is there anything else that either one of you want to add before we go? I would just encourage all your listeners to take a look. Start with the infographic because it's nice and short, and then you can dig into the report if you want more. There are a lot of things that can be done to help bring more people into faster payments in a way that will work for them. And this is our opportunity to make it happen. Thank you. Yeah, and I'll just take it one step further, Gail, and I'll say once you've done those two things, shoot us an email at info at fasterpaymentscouncil.org and join up with the FPC and get involved in the workgroup activities firsthand. Great. Well, Reed, Gail, I know you guys are very, very busy. So thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate you being here. Thank you. Thank you. And to all you listeners out there, I thank you for your time as well. And until the next story. Thank you for joining us this week on the Leaders in Payments podcast. Make sure you visit our website at leadersinpayments.com, where you can subscribe to the show and where you'll find our show notes. If you enjoyed listening, please share on your social channels as well. 